All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Over the next few weeks, as we approach Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be studying some of the people who were closest to Jesus in that last week before the cross. Important to see what was going on, and I've been real struck this year as I've been studying of the different people that interacted with him. And as we kind of begin to narrow down our focus now, and I hope you are, on remembering the agony of the cross and also on celebrating the total victory of the empty tomb, it's important that this is a time where we're very introspective spiritually. I want to encourage you over the next few weeks, really spend time with the Lord and really spend time reflecting on uh, what Jesus did for us and uh, what you would have done had you been there. I, I was struck by those questions a few nights ago. How would I have reacted? What would I have done if I had been in the crowd or if I had been one of Jesus' disciples? What would I have been thinking? Would I have stood for him? Would I have um, been faithful to the end or would I have run like the rest of the din? And that's easy to understand. What would I have believed? What, what would have been my conviction in that time? It's, it's hard for us to, to, to fathom what it was like. It's easy with the perspective of time to read it and say, well, I have a picture of what was going on and, and what this must have like. And that's shaped by movies and pictures that we've seen or, or whatever the case may be. Julie and I were talking yesterday in the car about uh, what life in the first century must have really been like. And I said to her, I've never thought about the fact that wondering where people would have washed their clothes because there's no river near Jerusalem. So where did they go? Did they have special little pools or what was it like? I I think it's hard for us to really fathom, even though Israel is a lot uh, now like it was then, it's hard to fathom what this was really like. And for us, with the perspective of time, we look at the apostles and say, well, why did they run? Or why did Peter deny? Or, Or why did they fail to believe when the women came back and said, He's risen. The angel told us. What what was going on there? And yet for them at that time, it was so intense. And there was so much pressure and it was so different than they would have imagined. They were in uncharted territory in terms of their perspective, in terms of understanding what was going on. Not just as disciples, but as normal people who were going through something very unprecedented. And I'm not sure we can really fully grasp or appreciate how unusual it was to have Jesus among them, to hear him teach and to watch him do miracles and and for the religious establishment to be so annoyed and and to be set on its head than to see multitudes of people passionately following him and, and other people just as passionately plotting to kill him. Now, for the disciples and for those who interacted with Jesus in that last week, their convictions were severely tested. And what they believed and who they were and what their lives were going to be like from here on out was now put to the crucible. Now now they were facing something that they had never faced before. It had been relatively easy to walk around and be kind of in the inner circle and, and to see him Uh, do the miraculous things he did and see the crowds following and to kind of feel good about themselves that that they were close to him. But now it's all being tested. And now they come to the place 
where their lives are being threatened and where Jesus is being arrested and where Jesus is being put on the cross. And now the conviction has to take hold or it has to collapse. Now that's important, I think, for us to study. And it's important for us to reflect on what we would have done had we been in their situation. So this morning we're going to study someone that we rarely study. I'm not sure I've ever even preached about him. It's here in Luke chapter 22. The name Judas Iscariot is really a stain on history. Everybody knows Judas. It's funny that, well not funny, it's ironic, that people will wonder whether Jesus was real. We saw that in the first video. Whether God even exists, and yet everybody talks about Judas. Nobody denies that Judas existed because we talk about people that have been a Judas in our lives, or, or pop culture even talks about it. One of the most popular singers had a song named Judas. Everybody knows Judas. Few people want to accept Jesus, but everybody knows Judas. The name Judas is something that we kind of frown when we say it. We know him as the person who sold Jesus to the religious leaders, who were determined to silence Jesus once and for all, who were determined to put him to death but didn't know how to do it, so they found somebody that was close to him and used him to get Jesus. And Judas had access to Jesus' plans. He knew where he would be. He knew how to get him at a weak moment, so to speak, how they could arrest him. But we don't know much about Jesus. We don't know about his background. We don't know much about his family. There really aren't any important details about who he was. He's only mentioned in eight different passages in the Gospels. So there's not a, a wealth of information. We don't see a lot of him talking or reacting other than a select few times. But we can learn a lot about him by studying the words that he did say and looking at the decisions that he did make, especially as they relate to Jesus. So this morning, I want to focus chapter 22, the book of Luke, on the moment that defined his life. The fatal decision that he makes to not only provide the opportunity for the Pharisees and the priests to capture Jesus, but we also want to see what was in his heart and mind. Let's start chapter 22 and verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, speaking of Jesus. They were afraid of the people. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them apart from the crowd. Go over to verse 47, please. They're now in the garden. And it says, while Jesus was still speaking to the disciples who were sleeping, Judas had left at that point. Behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I, I tried to picture again this week just how life-changing it must have been to be around Jesus. To hear him teach as one who had authority from heaven. To watch him heal people and raise people from the dead. To see the amazing power that was in him and out of him. And yet at the same time to see 
his incredible humility. The disciples had made a decision early on to abandon their lives, to abandon what they knew, to abandon their families. And we don't get a sense throughout the Gospels that they ever regretted that or that they were reticent about continuing to do that. And included in that, and it's interesting in the text, each time Luke talks about Jesus, Judas, he says he was one of the twelve. In other words, don't miss the detail. Don't, don't just neglect that reader, that, that he was part of the ones that were called out. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to leave his life and his career and his family and follow Jesus around. We don't know what motivated him. We have no idea really about his past. Why did he follow Jesus? How was he called? That's not specified in Scripture. So, so what prompted him to be there? There's very little indication until the latter part of the Gospels that, that Judas was insincere or that he was plotting to betray Jesus or that, that all along he had placed himself purposely in the right spot at the right time because Jesus had called him and Jesus knew what his mission was. So, so what got him there? In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples into the culture and he commissions them and gives them power, and they do miraculous things. And Judas was one of those 12. So what happened? Why did he break and the other 11 stay faithful? And that's a real important question for us this morning, and, and it's one we need to, to kind of ponder and kind of wrestle with as we look at the study. Because how could, be, how could Judas be near to Jesus every single day? How could he be in his presence and hear his teaching and watch his miracles and see the humility and the reason that he was there and hear him say, I'm going to go to the cross? How could Judas hear that every day and not by deeply, be deeply affected by it? And yet that's what happened. It presents a challenge to us and it draws us to a very important spiritual principle. Because Judas' life shows that apparently we can be in the presence of the Lord, we can be near the Lord, and somehow remain spiritually disaffected. Judas walked with Jesus every day for three years. He was in his presence like none of us is because he was actually physically with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet somehow... He, he didn't get it. It didn't penetrate his heart. It didn't affect him spiritually in the sense that his life was changed. Now, I thought about this because Judas really personified the average Christian life. Maybe even more than the typical believer. He, he heard the word of God. He worshiped with other believers. He prayed. He served the Lord. He was even sent out to do miracles, and he watched firsthand the miracles. He was there when Jesus calmed the sea, and when Jesus walked on the water, and when Jesus healed the leper, and when Jesus healed the woman with the hemorrhage, and when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. I mean, he was there for all of it. He watched every bit of it. And he even had a valuable responsibility to keep all the money for all the disciples. He had left his life to follow the Lord, he was well known as one of the disciples. He had even gone on special ministry assignments that the Lord blessed, and he had been fruitful. Everything externally about him would argue that he was a faithful servant of the Lord, to the extent that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they all look around like, 
Which one is it going to be? Nobody says, well, of course it's Judas. I mean, we've had him pegged for years. The guy's a loser. The guy's unfaithful. The guy doesn't love you, Jesus. He, he's the one. They'll look at each other and they're like, they don't have a clue. And Jesus says, I'm going to dip the bread in the wine and hand it to somebody. And that's going to be the one. He dips it, hands it to Judas, and they're still going, we have no clue. How could that be? Because everything externally looked right. Judas had apparently hidden who he was, and he apparently was very effective at it. He acted like he believed. He acted like he was faithful. And they had totally bought the act. And I don't know why that hit me so hard this week, but, but it is absolutely stunning how easy it is to look like a Christian and act like a Christian, but not really love the Lord. Judas was near to Jesus. He seemed like he was one of the most fervent disciples, but his heart was far from the Lord. And that should cause us to realize just how deceptive the enemy is and just how essential it is for us to examine our hearts and make sure that we are really surrendered to Jesus Christ. Because proximity to the Lord doesn't guarantee that you are totally committed to him. Simply knowing his power and his work and his faithfulness doesn't mean that we're fully trusting in him. Being recognized as a Christian doesn't prove that we have put off sin and yielded our lives to him. Judas exemplified everything that we would say describes a believer, and yet he wasn't. Now, maybe he was completely aware of that, or maybe he was partially deceived. But whatever the case was, Judas acted pious. He acted concerned. He acted like spirituality and and following Jesus Christ was the right thing and that he had bought into it. And yet, there's nothing to suggest that that's who he was. And that's the very definition of a hypocrite. It's the Greek word for playing a part, of having the two masks, tragedy and comedy. That was the word hypocritus. It, it meant that you played a part, that you acted like one thing, but you really were another. The definition of a hypocrite is that your words and your actions don't match, that your beliefs and, and who you are really isn't consistent. The outward appearance doesn't match the inward conviction. The temptation to live this way is one of the enemy's most aggressive strategies against mankind. And the Spirit challenges us as believers, don't fall for it. Don't assume that everything is perfect, that your convictions are genuine, that, that you've truly separated yourself from sin just because you go to church or just because you say, I'm a believer. In fact, he gives a very direct warning in 1 Corinthians 10 to examine our hearts carefully. He says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, all the Jews that were in the wilderness had the same advantage. They all had the same leading of God and the same blessing of God, but some of them weren't faithful to the Lord. And he writes this, now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things that they craved. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Don't act immorally as some of them did. Don't try the Lord as some of them did. Don't grumble as some of them did because they were destroyed by the destroyer. 
These things happened to them as an example for us, and they were written for our instruction. And then this is the line I want you to hear. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That hit me this week. I've been saved 48. I've been saved 39 years. Coming up on 40 years. And yet every day, the scripture is telling me, examine yourself. Examine your heart. Make sure you are walking with the Lord. Don't assume. Don't, don't just think, well, everything's fine and there's no problem and there's a little sin here or there or I'm a little proud in this area or I'm not trusting in this area, but, but everything's great. He says, take heed that you don't fall. Those words are a challenge and a call to the church. And they are calling us to make sure that we are sincere in our lives. Because sometimes there are dichotomies. Sometimes there are inconsistencies in who we are. And I think there are five key areas of spiritual examination. Five very hard and direct questions that we need to ask ourselves because they, they cause us to examine directly what is going on in our lives. And, and they will reveal, are there inconsistencies taking place in my life? Listen, this is a hard word this morning. I've struggled with it even as I got here. This is a challenge to us, but it's something we need to do as believers. So let's ask a couple questions. Am I a believer, but I actually have very little faith? Am I a believer, but I have very little faith? See, the essence of belief is complete confidence and secure trust in the Lord. If we don't trust the Lord fully, what do we actually believe? So am I a believer who has little faith? Second, am I a Christian who is hesitant to publicly stand for and declare Christ? Have I taken the name of Christ? Am I a Christian? Do I call myself by that name? And yet when it comes time to defend him or to declare him or to stand for him, I'm hesitant. And I'm a little bit ashamed. I, I, I don't quite want to go there yet. Third, am I a disciple? And yet I'm not really actively learning and maturing and becoming like him. By definition, a disciple is someone that abandons their life and strives to model their master's life. So does that describe you and me? If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, are we really modeling our lives after him? Fourth, am I a child of God, but I don't really draw near him or abide in him on a regular basis? A child is someone who is dependent and purposely draws close to their father for strength and security rather than being rebellious and independent. So is there an independent streak in us? Are we saying, well, I love being saved and I love the perks of being able to go to heaven and be forgiven of my sins, but I don't really want to abide with Christ. And fifth, am I someone who loves the Lord, quote unquote, but who actually has a greater priority to love myself? Because you can't have it both ways. Either you love him or you love yourself. Now those five phrases, those five words, believer, Christian, disciple, child, and someone who loves the Lord, 
they could have easily described Judas. Anybody that looked at Judas' life 2,000 years ago would have said, sure, that's who Judas is. He's one of the disciples. He, he must be walking right. But Judas didn't take heed, and he fell. Look back at chapter 22 to see how that's explained in the text. In verse 1, it says that this was right before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover. Now, that's a very ironic detail. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the time of remembrance of God's deliverance and God's salvation of the people out of bondage in Egypt. And it was a particularly humbling celebration for the Jews because they looked back at what their ancestors had gone through and what they did not deserve and how God brought them out of slavery and bought them out of bondage and by his mercy and by the blood of redemption, the Passover lamb put on the doorpost, that God had brought them out and delivered them into the land that he had promised. It's a picture of the cross. We've studied that in Revelation. It's a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ that the blood was shed and put on the wood and the people would be delivered. So the Feast of Unleavened Bed was the high point. It was when the people remembered God's deliverance. Now, this is not coincidence. Look at verse 1. It says that Judas chose this time to be the time to yield his heart to sin and bondage and to be spiritually calloused. And just as he does whenever we give him an opening and whenever we aren't resistant to sin and self, the enemy moves in and he takes advantage of it. Look at verse 3. It says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. The devil entered into his heart. Now, this is not describing a strong temptation that causes a believer to, to go offline for a minute, to kind of yield to sin and do something that's inconsistent with their conviction. We know that because the devil cannot occupy what the Lord owns. The devil cannot occupy what the Lord owns. And the meaning of the word entered here in the original language is to take possession. So this is not saying that Judas was just under really strong temptation and the devil's giving him thoughts and giving him an idea maybe you should stray and maybe you should give jesus up to the pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes maybe that would be a good idea this is not just a temptation this is full control that the devil takes of judas now if the devil can't control what god owns that means judas was never saved and that means that his whole life was a sham. That everything that he had done for the last three years was out of a heart that was not given to the Lord. It was out of a heart of hypocrisy. And I don't know about you, but that stuns me. I never thought about it before this week in that way. That Satan took possession, which means God didn't have possession in the first place. That Judas was going through the motions and acting like he was a follower of Christ, but he really wasn't. It had started when he began to covet the money that everybody gave him. Here, Judas, you're honest. You hold on to it. And Judas started to hold on to the money, and he started to look in the bag and say, you know what? They don't know what they're giving me. The right hand doesn't know the left hand. I think I'll pilfer some of that. And he started to get greedy and steal it. Ephesians says, don't give the devil any opportunity to tempt you 
But, but John 13, 2 says the enemy used just that opportunity. And, and early on, he started to put it into Judas's mind. Maybe you ought to betray Jesus. You, you like money? You know what? I bet the Pharisees and the scribes give you some money to give Jesus up. And because his heart wasn't given to the Lord, he thought, hmm, I'll, I'll put that in the back of my mind. Just, just let that rest there for a while. And then the opportunity presents itself. When you start down the path of compromise, when you start to open up your heart to the possibility of rebelling against the Lord, that thought that we should reject starts to take hold like a fungus and it starts to infect us and then it becomes more attractive and we give into it and that sets in motion and very quickly we go from the thought to rebellion. How many know that pattern? That's true, right? Just a thought. And within a few minutes, we're fully into the sin. And we say, wait a second, how did that happen? Lord, I know better. We can't yield to that thought. Why did Judas give in? He gave in because his life was a show. His public convictions were a charade. His ministry had a selfish angle. He was hypocritical. And now by chapter 22, look at verse 4. He didn't care who knew about it. He initiates a meeting with the chief priests. And he knows, he tells them, look guys, you haven't been able to do it. You're scared of the crowds. I know, I've watched you. You really want to get Jesus, but you're worried what people are going to say. And you're especially worried because it's coming up on Passover. Tell you what, I know I'm your guy. I can tell you exactly where he's going to be. I've got an advantage because I've got the inside scoop. I can help you accomplish your goals. Notice in the text, you'll see this, that he had plenty of time to think about the decision. This wasn't spontaneous. I want to give up Jesus. Here's 30 pieces of silver. Where is he? Let's go get him right now. There was time that elapsed where Judas laid on his bed and was able to think about what he was doing. Because he was lacking conviction, he went through with it. And he shows up, chapter forty, uh, chapter 22, later in the text, verse 47 and beyond, he shows up with a small army. He knows no one's going to fight. Maybe Peter, because Peter's impulsive. And Peter loves the Lord. He's going to defend Jesus. But, but come on, nobody's really going to do it. So he shows up with a small army because he's insecure. And, and, he, and he acts like he's still a disciple. Notice how he comes up to Jesus and, and with mocking says, Master, like he's really still a disciple. Like they're really going to be fooled. Even knowing the sovereign plan of God. Even knowing the need for Christ to go to the cross to be able to redeem us from sin. What Judas does here is shocking. Especially because he was so close to Jesus all the time. Seeing that, I can't help but be humbled that Jesus still was willing to go ahead. But we should also be sobered at how easily Judas succumbed to the appeal to be a hypocrite and to do, and we should do everything that we can to avoid and offset that in our lives. Granted, Judas didn't love the Lord like we do, but that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that even as we're close to the Lord, we can be swayed in our convictions and we can start to crave evil things instead of holiness 
and loving the Lord. So how do we fight that? How do we offset that in our lives? And how do we keep our convictions strong? I want to give you three principles this morning, and then we're going to pray. First of all, it is better to be humble and faithful as a disciple. It is better to be a humble and faithful disciple than a prominent one who is insincere and unfaithful. It's far better if your life and my life is humble and faithful and people don't give us a claim, but we serve the Lord than to be prominent and to be insincere and unfaithful. Listen, nobody knows much about Bartholomew. You ever heard a great story in the Gospels about Bartholomew? He didn't get out of the boat and walk on the water. He didn't deny Christ three times. He wasn't at the transfiguration. Bartholomew was just one of the disciples. But we can say for sure, he never betrayed Jesus. And then there's Philip or the other James. There were two of them. Or Simon the Zealot or, heaven help him, the other Judas. They were all disciples. They all walked faithfully with the Lord. We know nothing about them. There's no detail. They're not like Peter and James and John. But Jesus hand-selected them. Jesus chose them to be part of the twelve. They watched him work. They heard him teach. They were there at the formation of the church. Unlike Judas, they remained faithful to the Lord. They were there when he rose again. They saw him in the upper room. And they, in Acts 2, when the church was formed, stood boldly for Jesus. But we know nothing about them. Listen, whatever the calling is on your life this morning, whatever he gives you in terms of ministry and serving him, whether it's prominent or behind the scenes, be humble and holy and honest and faithful because that's what the Lord wants. Consistency is highly underrated. And it's far better to consistently abide with Christ and be his good and faithful servant than to be a flash in the pan who wavers back and forth. Judas was like Diotrephes in 1 John 3, who loved to have preeminence and be noticed. Listen, it is so far better to have a life that is given to Christ that is about bringing glory to Christ than a life that is about us. He must increase and I must That's the equation. Second, thank you for that affirmation from down there in the front row. Second, our constant goal, our constant goal should be that our words unwaveringly match our actions. Our constant, fervent, passionate goal is that our words totally match our actions because honestly, How can someone who loves the Lord and is controlled by his Holy Spirit live any differently? How can we live in a way that contradicts our new nature? Now, much of what drives this and much of what makes this appeal of temptation and causes us to give into it is that we we live in a duplicitous way to try to please or impress Somebody else. I tried to think of the reasons this week why Judas did what he did. Maybe he didn't feel that he was appreciated enough by Jesus and the others. 
Maybe he resented that he wasn't really in the inner inner circle, that he wasn't a Peter, a James, or a John. I always wondered how the other nine felt when Jesus spent more time with them. Did, did he feel jealous? Was he resentful? Or maybe he thought the chief priests w- would give him something, that, that they'd favor him, that they'd say, wow, Judas, you really took a bold step and betrayed Jesus. We're going to give you a place of prominence. I'm sure psychoanalysts could dissect this for 20 years and gov up with a million reasons. And you know what? None of them would be correct. Judas betrayed Jesus because his heart wasn't committed to the Lord. Listen, the Christian life is never an act or a show. The Christian life, ministry, walking with Jesus, singing, preaching, studying, praying, witnessing, serving, whatever it may be, that's never to be a show. It is only to be a true reflection of our heart. And if we really love the Lord and we are faithful to Him, then our words will be faithful to our actions and our actions will be faithful to our words. If we really love the Lord, we will never have to say, how am I supposed to act now to to please the Lord? If you love Him, you'll know. And it will also be absolutely clear when you're not. And if we're giving in to spiritual hypocrisy and we're feeling disaffected in our walk, we need to fervently, passionately, and, and immediately ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And we need to surround ourselves with godly brothers and sisters who will ask the hard questions and come close to us and pray for us and say, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to ask you the questions you don't want to be asked because I love you and I care for you and I don't want to see you stumble. If that's you this morning and you don't have somebody, you come up after the service. There will be people that will pray for you and minister to you because we don't want anybody in this room to be saying, I'm struggling and nobody knows. Third and last, conviction always drives action. Conviction always drives action. So make sure that your convictions are biblical and that they're pleasing to the Lord because conviction always drives action. We've said it before. The world is changing so dramatically and and morals are declining so exponentially. We may not even recognize our culture in 20 years if Jesus doesn't come back before then. Just an example I heard yesterday. The Victoria's Secret's latest marketing push is to tweens. And they had a concert with Justin Bieber. Forgive me for mentioning that name in church, but i got to tell you the story. They had a concert with Justin Bieber, knowing that young girls would want to come see him in concert, and then they could expose them, pun intended, to, to the latest line of, forgive me for saying this church, i got to tell you, to the latest line of thongs, one of which says, call me. This is for children 9 to 12 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm disgusted by that. But that's our culture. And it's not going backwards. Is there any doubt that we can't afford to give in to that, that we have to resist it, Because it's not part of an enlightened culture. It's part of a sinful culture. The response of someone who's saved by Jesus Christ and who loves the Lord 
is that you and I need to be people of strong biblical conviction and we need to be completely unashamed of that, even if it makes us counterculture and especially because it makes us counterculture. I want to be counterculture if that's what my culture loves. So we can't be ashamed of the gospel and we can't be ashamed of Jesus Christ and we can't be ashamed of this book. We can't be. This is what drives us. We aren't living for the world's approval. We're living for the Lord's approval and to draw people to know him and trust him and love him. It's interesting. I was sitting in my van yesterday with my kids. We were waiting and I was writing down some notes and the Lord was giving me some ideas for this morning. And I was right at this part of of thoughts about the message. And one of my kids who's playing a, a trivia game on their iPod says to me, right as I'm writing this, Dad, what's conviction? I thought, well, that's interesting because I just wrote the word. Conviction is a strong persuasion or belief that you're convinced about. And I can't imagine for a believer any conviction that is stronger than the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose again and gave us a new life and fills us with his spirit and calls us to live in holiness according to his word. Conviction requires courage, especially when we're up against those who disagree or are pushing for another way to live. But conviction drives action. And because it's from the Lord, it will give us courage and confidence. That's Judas's problem. We're done. He was a coward because he knew he was wrong. Look at verse 6, and we'll close our Bibles. It says in verse 6, he looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus apart from the crowd. If Judas was so convinced that what he was doing has, was right, he would have stirred up the people, and how much influence would he have had because he could have said, I have been on the inner circle, I have watched him, and I'm telling you, he's wrong. I've walked with him for three years, and as someone that's been there, crowd, we need to put him to death. Imagine the crowd was so easily swayed from Sunday to Friday. Imagine how easily, if somebody with authority had said that, they would have turned. But Judas knew he was wrong. So he tries to plot, how can we arrest him when nobody will see it? I believe being near Jesus had affected him. He just didn't want to give in. He didn't want to give his life over to the Lord, so he chose to resist rather than trust. What's your conviction this morning? What what do you really believe? Don't glide over that question because we see how easy it is for someone even close to the Lord to act the part but not really believe. So let me ask you, and this is a hard question, is your life really given to the Lord? Do the words that describe us, believer, Christian, child of God, disciple, do they really describe you? Are you really committed to the Savior? Have you really surrendered to Him? Is your conviction strong or is it weak? Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Not because we want to doubt our salvation, but because Christ has redeemed us so we would live a new life 
that is marked by holiness. A life that is completely given to Him. Let's close our eyes. As we head into this season where we remember His work the most, let me ask you this morning just for a moment to have a time of spiritual self-examination. What has the Lord said to you this morning? What is God calling you to? Are the inconsistencies a statement of weak conviction? Is your lack of trust a, 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 a statement that you really just don't believe? I don't know. I, the, the goal is not to attack this morning. The goal is that we would all be called to conviction by the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you this morning, if the Lord is speaking to you and working in your heart, that right now you submit those things to Him and ask Him to remove them to help you to not fall back into the old man, to the old pattern, that you would make a fresh commitment this morning to really live as His disciple. Not someone who's just close but disaffected. Someone who loves the Lord. Someone who is faithful to the Lord. The Spirit of God wants to purge that inconsistency and that indifference from our lives. And what better time as we think about the victory that has been won by Christ for us. not going to ask you to come forward this morning, but with every eye closed, I'm going to ask you if that's you this morning, if the Lord has brought that conviction to you this morning, that you raise your hand. I'm only going to look because I want to be able to pray for you. Lord, we ask you this morning to do this work in our lives. You see the hands that are raised this morning. Those that are saying, my conviction is not strong. I'm struggling. I'm close to you, but I'm not really close to you. Lord, whatever it is in each person's life this morning, we ask you would do a fresh work of your grace. That by your mercy, you would cleanse what is impure. And you would bring about change that is lasting. Lord, none of us wants to be like Judas. Who walked with the Savior for three years. And his heart was unchanged. Father, break us of our pride. Break us of our resistance and our rebellion. Wash over us with your cleansing blood, Lord. To remove the impurity that we still allow in our lives and to use us in a powerful way. Lord, in the next few weeks, the opportunities to serve you and to invite people to hear the gospel are huge. May our lives be consistent and may our words be bold as we do that.
Lord, we thank you and praise you for your mercy and your love and for how you cleanse us. We ask you to use us in a mighty way. We pray this in Jesus' name.